0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 20. I'm going to cover in this audio verses 17 through 38. Our context is this. Paul is on his way back from his third missionary journey, having just retraced his steps through Macedonia, through the three Macedonian churches at Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. He has sailed from Philippi to Troas, back in Asia, on the northwest coast of Anatolia. He has gone down the coast, western coast of Asia Minor, and he has passed Ephesus, and he is now in Miletus, and that's where we'll pick up. He was accompanied on this trip by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby; Timothy, Antiochus and Trophimus from Asia, Trophimus being from Ephesus in particular. These people were, were helping him carry the Jerusalem collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They were accompanying Paul back to Jerusalem. So that's where we are in Acts chapter 20. Starting at verse 17, we read this, Now from Miletus he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Miletus is on the southwestern coast of Asia Minor. It's about, I think, 30 miles from Ephesus. It was a famous city in antiquity long before Paul's time. It had It wasn't such a big deal now. Ephesus was the big deal. But back in a long time ago, it was a very well-known city, the home of the first philosopher of Western philosophy, Thales. Now, Paul didn't, he he sailed right past Ephesus. He didn't put ashore at Ephesus. Why? His ship was on the way to Jerusalem, and he would have to get a change to ship. If he went to Ephesus, then it might take him a long time to change ships. Why was he getting such a hurry? Remember, he's trying to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost as we read in a, another verse in our previous audio. Also, if he went to Ephesus, he would have to visit all the families of the church there, the people he had known for years, and that would take a lot of time. And there's also the possibility he could start another riot in Ephesus like he did the last time he was there. So for all three of those reasons, he just skipped Ephesus and went to Miletus and called for the elders to to walk or travel from Ephesus down to Miletus. We go to verse 18. And when they, the Ephesian elders, came to him, came to Paul, he, Paul, said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, I was with you the whole time. Now I'm assuming here that when he says the first day I set foot in Asia, he's talking about Ephesus, which was in Asia, in the Roman province of Asia. And he's talking about Ephesus because he's talking to the Ephesian elders here. Paul stopped in Ephesus briefly on the way back on the second journey. We read that in Acts 18, verses 19 through 20. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on the third journey, when he came to Ephesus, he stayed there for two years and three months. That was on the third journey. And so Paul is basically saying is, when I came to Ephesus, I was with you the whole time, teaching you, instructing you, encouraging you, and all that kind of thing. He was not there to commend himself. He didn't. What's the reason why he mentioned the fact that he had spent so much time with the Ephesian elders? Was it to say, look what a great guy I am, what a great minister I am? Well, obviously not. He might have mentioned this so that he might oppose anyone who might oppose his doctrine that he was teaching. Basically, he's trying to set an example for the elders, say, look, I was there the whole time, you know who I am. You need to oppose the people that are bringing in these false teaching and heresies, which he's going to mention later because I was with you the whole time. You know me. Basically, he's saying, look, you know me. You've had chance uh, had a chance to get to know me closely and to know me well, to know me intimately. You know that I care for you. And when he left them, they were all on their knees crying and weeping and hugging Paul because obviously they were very close to him. And so Paul is just mentioning that he was very close to them and therefore He knows that what he says will be taken to heart. We go to verse 19 in Acts 20. Paul continues, Serving the Lord with all humility with the time that he was with with the Ephesian elders in, in Ephesus. He says he was, verse 19, He was serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Now Paul is being a little bit histrionic here. Tears. What kind of tears? Where where could they have come from? The NIV Study Bible says because of his emotional fervency and urgency, and I think that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, "Oh, I cared so, I cared so much for you, Ephesian elders, that I cried over you." Whether he actually did or not, I don't know. But the point is, is he cared for them so much that it would bring a normal person to tears? Could be the tears of the sorrows of persecution. Remember, there was a riot in Ephesus that he caused. And the Jews gave him a lot of trouble, too. So it could be because tears of persecution. It could have been tears because of the obstinacy and unbelief of some, as John Gill says. Well, maybe so. He could have been concerned about the walk of the new converts there. And so he's painstakingly taking care of the young Christians there to make sure that they are rooted and grounded in the faith. But at any rate, he's telling the Ephesian elders what they all know. He also served the Lord with humility He was not trying to build an empire there. He lectured in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, separate from the church there. He let the church grow up on its own. He didn't try to tell the church at Ephesus what to do. He didn't try to have a huge crystal Cathedral. He didn't have to have a huge football stadium or basketball arena to have his church in. He just had a humble lecture hall, and he didn't take money from them. As we'll see in just a minute, he worked so he wasn't taking money from from him. So yeah, he was pretty humble, all right. He was very humble. Now he mentions the trials that came to Paul through the plots of the Jews. That happened on the second journey on the third journey, I'm sorry, in Acts nineteen nine, I'll read that. But when some of the Jews became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So that's it just mentions that the Jews reviled a slandered Jesus, and so Paul had to withdraw from them. We go to Acts 20, verse 20. Paul continues, And that I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching it to you in public and from house to house. Well, public, the public teaching he did was first in the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus. I just mentioned that. Then they reviled away, and he withdrew from there. And I must point out to you some of Paul, what Paul calls teaching. He says, "I taught it to you." That was really evangelism at first in the Jewish synagogue, but he—I guess—he kind of lumps the words together when he went into the lecture hall of Tyrannus. That, of course, was predominantly teaching. No, those were public. That was public teaching. He mentions public teaching and from house to house. Now, house to house refers to the fact that the early church did not meet in church buildings. So when Paul taught the church at Ephesus. He didn't get them into some kind of ecclesiastical barn and some kind of ecclesiastical warehouse. He went into their homes, which means that he was close to them. He knew them. There were no Christian church buildings until the mid-third century at the time of, or, the, or maybe the early, well, the early to mid-fourth century at the time of Constantine. Now, teaching is much more effective, I think, when you teach people in the intimacy of their homes. People always say, oh, you've got to have a big crowd, Well, I have taught in homes before, and one time I taught in Africa to I think it was about a thousand people in in the group. That's the biggest crowd I ever spoke to. I absolutely, I doubt they remember a thing I said. I don't know if they did or not. I had no feedback. I had no personal interaction. I much prefer teaching in a home and watching people's lives get changed. Much, 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 much better. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Did an apostle whose functions were of so wide a range, not feel satisfied without private as well as public ministrations? How then must pastors feel? In other words, get over having a big crowd. Sit down in front of a bunch of people in the house and teach them you're doing the same thing that Paul the apostle did. And I think that's a pretty good example. Now Paul says that he did not shrink back from proclaiming to the Ephesians anything that was profitable. Why might he want to shrink back? Well, the persecutions that he just mentioned, the Jews reviled the way and the Gentiles started a riot in the amphitheater there. That might make one tend to want to keep your mouth shut. But he was given a great example and a model for the elders of the Ephesian church. Don't be afraid, guys. Keep right on going. Don't worry about the persecution. Keep teaching the gospel. Now, notice Paul doesn't mention sermons. He says, I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you. I guess you might could take that as a sermon. But he mentions the word teaching that was profitable from teaching. Paul didn't give sermons with oratory. That's a Greek invention. I'm sure Paul's teaching was just like it was at Troas, which we mentioned in earlier in this chapter in the last audio, where Paul is said to give the people at Troas a dialogue. The Greek word is dialegamon, something I something like that. It's not a sermon. It's a dialogue. The only sermon in the New Testament was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You don't see any sermons in the church. I think that might be a good idea for the modern church, too, to have dialogue and teaching, not sermons where people sit like mute bumps on a log and listen to stuff being poured into the heads, which may or may not be true, which is not ever cross-examined for accuracy, and not to mention the fact it's just boring most of the time. It's much easier to have dialogue and teaching. Jesus did that, except at the Sermon on the Mount. But usually when he was with the Pharisees and his disciples, he taught them one-on-one, and they asked questions. Jesus, when is this going to be? Did Jesus, didn't you see this temple here? Look how great and big it is. You just pronounce woes on the Pharisees. But how can you say that their temple is going to be burnt down, their house is going to be burnt down? Look at that thing over there. And then Jesus had a little... Discussion with him, he gave the great Olivet discourse. Jesus taught by dialoguing with people. We go to verse twenty, Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-one. Paul continues. I, Paul, testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Now the Jews, of course, were in the synagogue at Ephesus, where Paul always went to first, and the Greeks were in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. So that Paul covered both the Jews and the Greeks, and what did he talk about? Here's the summary of what he was preaching. He gave it in one sentence. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same thing. As John Gill says, they are wrought in the soul at the same time. They are the epitome of the gospel, as John Gill says. Here's another verse where faith and repentance are put together. Mark 1.15 This is John the Baptist speaking. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Belief is just another word. It's a synonym for have faith. Repent and have faith in the good news. Repent and believe. Repent, repentance and faith. It's two sides of the same coin. We ought not to set them apart from one another. (laughs) Here's a definition of repentance from Merriam-Webster, the dictionary. The act of turning... Quote, from sin and dedicating oneself to the amendment of one's life. Turning from sin. So if you're going to turn from sin, if you truly believe in salvation, you're going to repent by definition. Because by believing in salvation, believing unto salvation, you're turning from sin. And believe, as I said, is to have faith. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. We cannot see Jesus. We cannot see what he did on the cross, but we believe in it so that he, when we repent, he takes our sins away. Acts 20, verse 22, and now Paul continues, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. Now, the NIV study Bible translates bound in my spirit as compelled by the spirit with a capital S. The Holman Christian study Bible has bound in my spirit with a little S. And as you know, the Greek does not have capital letters, so we have a translator's choice here. If you translate it as bound in my spirit, it's talking about Paul's spirit was telling him, I've got to go to Jerusalem. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, no, it was the Holy Spirit that's saying, Paul, you got to go against, you got to go to Jerusalem. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation that Paul was bound in his spirit leaves open an argument against Paul saying that Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to take that up when we get to chapter 21 when he meets Agabus. I think it was at Caesarea or Tyre. He meets Agabus. And Agabus tells him there's going to be persecution waiting for him in Jerusalem. And there's a big theological controversy. Well, did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit by going down to Jerusalem? And well, if you say he was bound in his spirit right here in verse 22, then that makes it sound like, well, it sounds like he's listening to his spirit, not the Holy Spirit. I don't agree with that. I agree with the the NIV study Bible, which says, no, he went there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not under the compunctions of his own spirit. We do know, in the next, I'll give you a little sneak preview of Acts chapter 21, some people pleaded with Paul not to go. It was in Tyre, well, actually, Tyre and Caesarea, Acts 21.4 in Tyre. So we found some disciples and stayed there at Tyre seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Ooh, sounds like they had a prophecy that Paul disobeyed. Acts 21.12, when he heard this, both we and the local people of Caesarea begged him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, we'll take up that thorny question, did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit? Could be the prophets missed the Lord. You know, that can happen. I tend to go with Paul. I think that man was a man of great integrity, great responsibility. He had visions and direct visions of the Lord. I don't think that he screwed up here. That's my humble opinion. But again, we'll take that up in the next chapter. But Paul did say he did not know what he would encounter there in Jerusalem in Acts 20, verse 22. And one might ask, well, how can a great prophet like Paul, who had great visions and prophecies and such, how could he not know what was going to happen there? Well, that's because prophecy is not a crystal ball. You don't know the future when you're a prophet. You know a piece of the future. You might know a slice of the future, a narrow slice. But you still got to live your life out naturally, and you got to put your pants on one leg at a time like everybody else does, and make plans and avoid persecution, etc., 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 Let's go back to this idea of did Paul screw up. The IV Study Bible says these people that I just mentioned in Tyre and Caesarea who were pleading with Paul, they were not pleading with Paul because they thought he was violating God's will. They were concerned because the Holy Spirit revealed that he would be captured there. In Acts 21:11 and 12, he, this is Agabus, came to us, the prophet at Caesarea, took Paul's belt, tied his old feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says, and this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. Now, you notice that Agabus never said, "Don't go. the Holy Spirit says, don't go down there. No, Agabus just said, hey, when you go down there, this is what's going to happen. He's trying to give Paul a heads up. Verse 12 and Acts 21, when we heard this, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke was involved in that too. No, Paul, we don't want to lose you. Don't go down there. You're going to get nailed. But that's not the same thing as saying that Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit. It could mean that Paul was brave enough to go where he knew that there was going to be persecution and imprisonment. That's called faith. Not knowing. Even with prophecy, you still don't know what exactly is going to happen. Faith is the essence of things not seen. Paul knew in general there was going to be persecution, but he didn't know exactly what was going to happen and when it was going to happen and and what was going to happen. We know when we read the book of Acts, but Paul didn't know in advance. We go to verses 23 and 24 of Acts 20. Paul continues, Except that in town after town the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Ah, even before he got to to, uh, Tyre and Caesarea right north of Jerusalem, even before he got all the way across the Mediterranean Sea in the towns that he's already passed, there were prophets testifying to him, I assume it's prophets, that chains and afflictions were waiting. Jameson Foster and Brown says it's prophets. I mean, it could be an internal leading of the Holy Spirit. It could have been a vision, could have been a dream. The scriptures usually don't tell you what the mechanism is, which always bugs me a little bit. I kind of like to know how it happened. But anyway, the Holy Spirit Told him that chains and afflictions were waiting, but the Holy Spirit never told Paul not to go where those chains and afflictions were waiting. So I, in my humble opinion, Paul never disobeyed the Holy Spirit. Now, if Paul did disobey the Holy Spirit, that doesn't say anything about inspiration. The, the prophets, the apostles, excuse me, were inspired and inerrant when they wrote the Bible, not when they did something. Big difference. These prophets were just giving Paul a heads up on what faced them. They weren't saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Acts twenty verse twenty five, Paul continues to the speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And now I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Everyone I went about preaching the kingdom to, all these Ephesians that he preached the kingdom to when he was in Ephesus. Now, the NIV study Bible has an interesting note here. Perhaps Paul was wrong about that. Maybe he did see Ephesus again. They quote 1 Timothy one three. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine. Now, I don't know how then of Study studied Bible reasons from that quotation there that Paul went back to Ephesus. And so I'm just mentioning this to say that some scholars apparently believe that Paul might have made it back to Ephesus. I don't think he did, but I don't know for sure. And you notice that just because Paul says, I know that I'll never see, see my face again, that doesn't mean that he could be mistaken about that. He can't, like I said, he, can't, he doesn't know the future. He, he's, he's not God. And Paul had been mistaken before in his plans, as the NIV Study Bible points out. He had, he had intended to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost before he went over to Macedonia to Corinth and then went back to Jerusalem. He had intended to do that, but he had to leave earlier probably because of the riot. We read this in Acts 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 16:8 through 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, he tells the Corinthians. But then in Acts 20, verse 16, it says he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Well, that was sailing past Ephesus on down to Miletus. That's right about the verse I just mentioned. So he's still trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, on the trip, but but originally he told the Corinthians, of First Corinthians 16, he planned to not even start from Ephesus until Pentecost had arrived. So he changed his mind, as the NIV Study Bible says. Paul's prophetic power was not used to foresee his own future, and that's true. Prophecies are narrow, and sometimes they're hard; to, they have to be interpreted correctly too. I'm, I don't diss prophecy. I'm not uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, John MacArthur. I am not John MacArthur and Justin Peters and Todd Friel and all the cessationists out there who who mock prophecy. I've seen prophecy work. I know what prophecy is. I know it's true, but I also know it needs to be judged. And I also know it's not a crystal ball that you can look at and see the future so you don't have to act responsibly. That would be an abuse of prophecy. We go to verses 26 and 27 of Acts 20. Paul continues, Therefore, I, Paul, testify to you, Ephesian elders, this day that I am innocent of everyone's blood, for I did not shrink back from declaring you the whole plan of God. He certainly did, and Paul was a brave guy. He preached, and there were riots. He preached, and there was slander, and reviling, and persecution, and kicking out of the expulsions from the synagogue. He's used to that, and as a result, he was innocent of everyone's blood. Now, Paul is referring to Ezekiel 33, 6. When he says that, I'll read that verse. However, this is Ezekiel thirty three six. However, if the watchman sees the sword coming but doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned, and the sword comes and takes away their lives, then they have been taken away because of their iniquity. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. If you think about it, that was the typical situation of all sentry people in militaries like the Roman military. If you fell asleep while you were on guard and somebody got in and harmed the camp or the soldiers or the town or the townspeople whoever was being guarded by the soldiers you did that you were toast your life was over kiss it goodbye you let people get killed because you fall asleep on duty well then you're going to die for that so this is kind of ezekiel what ezekiel says is very common now i will say this in my humble opinion the verse has been misused i remember early in my life when i was shall i say influenced by fundamentalist leaning type christians here in the south i would always hear this you better witness to that person or God's going to hold you accountable for their blood. And they would say it like that and make me think, if I don't witness to everybody I see, I'm going to go to hell. That's exactly, that's the way I took it anyway. Maybe that's not the way it was meant, but I heard it enough to where I think I know exactly how it was meant. Well, I don't think the verse means that you have to witness to every living soul in your path and you're going to be held, held blood guilty, that, that, that you're going to be held guilty of that person being in hell. The idea is not to shrink back from declaring the gospel to every, everyone, but it's to not shrink back from evangelizing those God has called you to witness to. Now, I do think the verse does have some strength there. I mean, Paul's very strong here. He says, hey, I'm innocent of your blood. I told the truth, and if they want to reject the truth and go to hell, well, then, hey, that ain't my fault. So, I mean, I do think that verse is good to use because when God is urging you to witness to somebody, there's nothing better than to witness to somebody. I just did last Sunday a young foreign exchange student, 17 years old, and 15 minutes, I gave her the hot gospel, and I sat there, and I watched her, and I could tell all of a sudden when I got to the part about, are you a sinner? No, I'm not sinning. I said, no, all the time? You've never sinned? Well, yes, I have. And I said, well, do you realize that you can't be with God if you do that, and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I see the eyeballs focus, and I see the attention. Nothing better than that. Well, I'm innocent of her blood if she doesn't Repent, and I hope she does. But if she doesn't repent and ends up in hell, it ain't my fault. Because I, you know, I witnessed to her. I believe God was calling me to witness to her because of because of circumstances. But I don't believe that I am innocent of, let's say, Osama bin Laden, because I didn't witness to him. I didn't have a chance to. <laughs> you know, it's lots of people I don't witness to. I'm not guilty of their blood if they refuse the gospel and end up in hell. It's not my fault. So we've got to be careful with that verse. Let's go and read some more from Ezekiel 33, 8-9 through 9 on that same theme. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to warn him about his way, that wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person to turn away from his way and he doesn't turn from it, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have saved his life. So, folks, it's our duty to warn people that they're going to hell. I don't know how else to say it. It's just our duty so we ought to always be alert. When people are interested, I'm working on another guy up in uh, Chicago right now. I just, a week ago, sent him a chat. Hey, I know your life is rough. We've been praying for you. Anytime you want to talk about the Lord, give me a chat. I hadn't heard a word. Well, hey, I hope he repents. I hope he doesn't end up in hell. But if he does, I told him that he was led to me to witness to him. It was an easy situation. I mean, it was obviously the Lord's leading it, but and I did the best I could, but... You know, so if he ends up going to hell, it ain't my fault. So we should have that idea that we need to witness to people. Paul said he didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Now, of course, that's not talking about the whole plan of God for each and every individual's life. Christianity does not have fortune tellers, folks. We don't know the future. The future is dark to us. Therefore, we have to believe in it. Faith is the essence of things not seen. We don't know the future. Paul is talking about the whole plan of God for salvation, He didn't shrink from telling them. And now we turn to verse 28. Paul continues, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you to as overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, this is one of my favorite verses because it proves that the leadership of a church consists of one function, one gift. Elder, overseer, and pastor. They're all the same thing. Now, of course, the way we do it in the American church is we have one pastor, and then we've got a bunch of little elders, and they're kind of like junior pastors, which is nonsense. They were plural elders, they were of equal authority, and they were all called indiscriminately either pastor or elder or overseer. It didn't matter. But today we have, we I call it a capital P pastor. Well, let's see how we see that. Paul says, the Holy Spirit has appointed you, you Ephesian elders, in verse 17, they're called the elders. Acts 20, verse 17 says this, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So he's talking to the elders. That word elders is presbyterus, presbyterus, in Acts 17. So he's talking to the presbyterus, the presbyters, the elders. And he says, God has appointed, the Holy Spirit has appointed you presbyterus, you presbyters, you elders, as overseers. That word overseers is episcopus, from which we get the word bishop. And then he says to the elder slash overseers, you need to shepherd the church of God. That's a verb there, main which means to shepherd. Po- excuse me, it's poimenane, poimenane, to shepherd the church of God. And the noun form of poimenane, the noun form of shepherd, is pastor, a shepherd, a pastor. So in English we have overseers, which are sometimes called bishops. We ha- they're supposed to shepherd or pastor of the church, and the people who are doing this are elders, or sometimes called presbyters if you're a Presbyterian. They're all the same people. Plural elders ran the church, and you can find this, you cannot, there was no one-man pastor in the early church, and I wish that we would do it the same way in today's church. Now notice that Paul says that, refers to God, the church of God which he, God, purchased with his own blood, God's own blood, that's what, that's, that verse is used a lot in theology, I think the simplest way to say this is this is a term of endearment referring to God's own son, God purchased with his own blood. It's involved with the theological issue of communication of the attributes and all that can the attributes of God, of Jesus be attributed to God and so forth, which I'm not going to get into right here. But I think the easiest way to look at this is with God purchased it with his own blood is because it was his son whose blood was given, and therefore, since it was his son's blood, it was God's blood too. So God purchased it with his God's own blood, because the blood came from his son, Jesus. That's the easiest way to take care of that. Some manuscripts, as the NIV margin points out, and Adam Clark point out, has as the reference of that, the referent of that pronoun he is not God, but rather of the Lord. So it would read like this. You overseers, you to shepherd the church of the Lord, which... He, the Lord, purchased with his own blood. In that case, it would refer directly to Jesus. That's a marginal reading. That's another manuscript. But it doesn't matter. We can just say it's God purchased with his own blood because Jesus' blood purchased the church and Jesus belonged to God. And so, therefore, Jesus' blood is God's blood. Notice also the Holy Spirit has appointed the Ephesian elders as overseers to shepherd the church. Well, but human beings have a part to do with it, too, as John Gill points out. Acts 14.23 this is talking about Paul and Bar- Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey when they Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders in every church so you see there was a, a recognizing of elders in every church i believe the elders them- the church themselves chose the elders and then the uh, apostles recognized who they had chosen put their stamp of approval on it if you will so it's the holy spirit does it and humans do it and that just shows that so much of what we do is a joint work with the holy spirit and us behaving in our human capacities, hopefully responsibly. Now, you notice that that blood that I was just talking about was a purchase. He purchased, God purchased with his own blood. God purchased the church. That is a, that's the language of redemption, because if you, for example, go to a pawn shop and get your guitar out of Hawk, which you borrowed money on and left the guitar as collateral, as a pledge, and you purchase that guitar out of hock, you buy it out of its, out of the lien that's on the, on the guitar, out of the claim that the pawn shop owner has on the on the guitar, and so you have you have purchased the guitar. And so it's a term that means you, I bought you out of hock. You were in slavery to sin, and I bought you out of that slavery to sin. We go to Acts 20, verse 29. Paul continues, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, how did Paul know that? Well, John Gill says in the divine revolution, revelation, John Gill always says that. He almost seems that human beings don't act naturally, using their natural wits. The other option is that Paul knew that these savage wolves were coming by natural deduction. For example, let me give you a quote from a commentator named Dumolo. Hymenaeus and Alexander were elders at Ephesus. Not a quote, but a statement. And of course, Hymenaeus and Alexander were the famous heretics who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Said it already occurred when it hadn't. First Timothy one nineteen through twenty, Paul writes this: Holding faith, in conscience by rejecting this, rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now I don't know how Dumbleo and I've got another commentator says it also that Hymenaeus and Alexander were elders at the church of Ephesus. I don't know how they know that, or at least they were. They were at Ephesus. And at any rate, it doesn't really matter because this cannot be how Paul knew that savage wolves would come in among the flock at Ephesus because Hymnus and Alexander referred to in the letter to 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy was written between 62 and 66 AD, which was a lot later than this speech by Paul to the, Homin- to the Milesian elders, which was in the 50s. However, it does show that Paul's prediction was right, that after he left Ephesus, there would be savage wolves come in among them, and among those savage wolves were Hymenaeus and Alexander, two of my favorite heretics because of the neo hymenean heretics, the hyper-faith, excuse me, the hyper-preterist heretics who deny the resurrection of the dead. I've had some unfortunate dealings with them, but at any rate... These guys would be considered savage wolves, I'm sure. Now, let me give you a quote from the Cambridge Commentary for Colleges and Schools, which gives us the idea of how Paul might have known, just by looking around him and through his experience, that there were heretics everywhere. Quote, he must have been familiar with the dangers to which the Ephesian church was exposed, and we know from his epistles how much harm had already been inflicted on the Christian church by the Judaizers and Gnostics. Even when writing to so undisturbed a church as that in Philippi, we find the Apostle giving warning against both kinds of error, that means Judaizers and Gnostics. And if we turn to those early parts of the Apocalypse in which the condition of the churches of Asia is described, we can read of a crop of errors, the sores of which St. Paul may have had in his mind as he spoke at Miletus. Miletus. Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, those that hold the teaching of Balaam, the woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, all these could not have risen in a moment, but must have given indications of their existence long before they became so prominent as they were when St. John wrote. So from a little bit of inference from other scriptures, we can see that there were heretics everywhere. If you read the New Testament, I mean... 90% 90% of what everybody was writing about in the New Testament was getting rid of heretics. They had two problems. They had heresy and they had legalism. And that's what showed up all the time. So it doesn't surprise me that Paul knew that savage wolves were coming among the flock at Ephesus. I don't think Gil's right, saying that Paul needed divine revelation to see that. Now, here's what's, here is what seems to me to be a principle of church history. When a church is young and alive, what's the first thing that happens? In come the wolves. Well, after the church gets eaten up by the wolves, the church puts up barriers then and says, "Uh uh-uh, no more prophecy. These prophecies were heretic, were were heresy. And this is why Paul had to say despise not prophecy because people were saying, "Uh uh-uh, no more prophecy. We've got to stop this heresy. Another thing the church put up against The early heretics of the early church is rigid rituals. If we just follow the ritual, we won't go off into heresy. And now you've got a dead church instead of a church eaten up by heresy. We need to avoid both extremes. We need to have good doctrine. We need to judge prophecies. We need to judge teaching. We need to judge character. We need to expunge from the church people who would sully it and harm it and hurt it. And then we need to stay alive to the Holy Spirit and become alive, not a dead ritualistic type church. Now Paul said, after his departure, savage wolves would come in among you in verse 29 of Acts 20. After his departure, what departure? Well, I've always taken that to, to mean after he left the Ephesian elders, after he leaves Miletus there and goes back to Jerusalem. Now Adam Clark says there's a problem with that because few of the mentioned evils took place during his life. Well, that seems to contradict that Cambridge quote above where I talked about all of the heresies that were in the church that the Apostle John mentioned in the book of Revelation and so forth, and Paul giving a warning to the church at Philippi against Gnostics and Judaizers. So I'm not sure Clark is right when he says few of the mentioned evils took place during his life. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that there were two sorts of heresies that infected the early church, Oriental Gnosticism and Judaizers. Oriental Gnosticism, we know early infected the Asiatic churches, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Judaizers troubled nearly all the early churches. Yeah, that's right. I don't see how you can deny that. So I think what he's talking about is not after he dies. I think the, the savage wolves came in before, before he died. So I think he's talking about his departure from Ephesus is when the wolves would come in. We go to verse 30 and 31 in Acts 20. And men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. Now, there's your wolf. A wolf is somebody who has a deviant doctrine. That's one type of a wolf. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I did not stop warning you, each one of you, with tears. There's that word tears again. He was very fervent at what he was doing. He kept saying, look out for these guys. Look out for these heretics. Now, he says three years precisely in Acts 19. We know it was two years and three months because it's stated. So as Adam Clark points out, three months he witnessed in the synagogue. Then he, he spent two years in the hall of Tyrannus. Luke tells us in Acts 19. So what does Paul say three years here? Well, because the Jews reckoned a part of a year as a whole year, as is well known. Jesus was not in the grave for three full 24-hour days. He was in the grave for part of Friday, all day Saturday, and part of Sunday. That's not three full days, but it's a part of three days, and so then the Jews would say he was in the grave for three days. So that's how you explain the three years That there. Literally, more precisely, it was two years and three months. I've already mentioned as some of these savage wolves who showed up with deviant doctrines l- later on. I mentioned Hermeneus and philetus also alexander was one and he was also called alexander the coppersmith hermogenes and infigilis as gill says now i'm taking his word for it i don't know where how he knows this but i'm taking his word lots of heretics showed up at ephesus and of course the apostle john wrote the book of revelation to the church well to the churches in asia and he specifically addressed the church at ephesus in revelation 2 6 Yet you, the church at Ephesus, yet you do have this. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there's another heresy that showed up at Ephesus, the Nicolaitans. Now, of course, most of these were after Paul had left the savage wolves that came in, just as he predicted. Now, you notice that these savage wolves lure the disciples into following them in Acts 20, verse 30. They lure the disciples into following them. They seduce them. Heretics love to draw people into groups, and they, let's, let's have a Bible study on the side, and then, re- and then they rebel against the rest of the church. I have a good friend of mine who had a church where a hyper heretic who was well-versed in his doctrines and was a big shot amongst that particular heresy, insinuated himself into an Orthodox church 10 years in advance before he started having Bible studies with fellow people in the church without telling the Orthodox elder of the church, who was a good friend of mine who told me all about this, Without telling the rest, without telling that elder, and he started having secret meetings, talking about how Jesus—excuse uh, me—Christians have already had their resurrected body, and we're not going to be resurrected from the dead anymore. And then, of course, they had a big rebellion against the rest of the church, and ended up in a big glorious stink. And finally, my friend just said, "Hit the road, Jack! You go believe this stuff. You got to keep it quiet or get the road." And they left. He kicked them out. Church almost died. It's doing fine now, thank God. But he had to excise the poison, or the church would have died. I know of another example of how in China these Oriental lightning heretics—they go into—and those people are bad. They believe that Jesus is a woman up in Hunan province somewhere who's coming back, who's already come back, and she's wandering around the roads of China and all some other crazy stuff. But they started coming to this church, and they befriended a a young woman in the church. And that heretic would put her on the back of a motorcycle and drive her around and drive her to meetings where they were having meetings and so forth. And their mode of operation was, hey, we can teach you the Bible. The Chinese church needs teaching very badly. See, Paul insulated the Ephesian church with all his teaching, but the Chinese church a lot of time doesn't have the teaching like that. And so she was so wanting to go to the teaching that she was tempted to go. And she was warned by a fellow Westerner who told her, "Uh uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh don't go. Don't go. You've got to watch out for this guy. And in another case, these Oriental Lightning people came into a church, and they made themselves friendly, and they got to know everybody, kept their mouth shut. And then they said, oh, we have some teaching, a teaching seminar. Would you like to go? And one of the elders, a young guy, because the Chinese church is very young, said, yeah, I'd like to go. And he went. They kidnapped him. They tied him up. They poured liquor all over him. Got a woman in her underwear. The woman, and he was a married man, this elder, The, the woman in an underwear goes over there and puts her arm around him and starts kissing him, and they take pictures, and they send the picture to the man's wife. That's the sort of people that heretics are. You don't deal with these people. They're savage wolves, and they lure you. They they come in secretly. You know, a wolf can look like a puppy dog. You know, he smiles, you know, and everything, but uh uh-uh. They'll eat you up if you let them. Here's a scripture in 1 John 2.19 referring to these type of people. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. That went out is, <laughs> that's what you got to get them to do. You got to get them to leave. Don't start talking about always oh, just love. This is what these hyper-preterous heretics, you don't love me. You're not showing love. As they continue to spread their gangrene and their poison. And when Paul says, I did not stop warning each one of you with tears against these savage wolves that are going to come in, he used the word tears again the second time he's used that word. But Paul could not be accused of exaggerating, exaggerating, because he knew of uh, the people that he was talking to knew him, and they knew how hard he had worked to protect them against savage wolves coming in, and how hard he worked teaching them. So he did. Paul was not afraid of Being a little bit histrionic there. Oh, I was crying. I worked for you so hard I I cried over it. That's fine. The people, his Ephesian elder audience would understand that. Acts 20 verse 32, Paul continues, and now I commit commit you to God into the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. The message of his grace, that's the word of grace that will edify you, build you up, and will give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. And that inheritance, John Gill says, is heavenly glory. And I wouldn't mind throwing in a few earthly blessings in that inheritance also, because although we don't have as many blessings here as we do in glory, we do have blessings from God. I, I can testify to that. and Any Christian can testify to that. God blesses his children, even though we live here in this veil of tears. I will get, The message of grace will give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. He's referring to Christians. And of course, Christians are sanctified, which means Dedicated or consecrated to God and separate from the world. Dedicated means consecrated. Dedicated to God separate from the the world. That also means holy. That's the definition of holy, definition of sanctified. It's a simple definition. We all ought to know it. We go to Acts 20, verses 33 through 34. Paul continues, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands have provided for my needs and for those who are with me. Now, Paul is extraordinarily concerned to avoid any appearance of greed, just like at Corinth and Thessalonica, where he refused to take money but worked as a tent maker. Why? So that nobody could accuse him of preaching the gospel for profit. Let's read that First Thessalon- in First Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. There's another motive not to put a burden on the people. And in Corinth, Acts 18.3, And being of the same occupation, stayed with them, that's Priscilla and Aquila, and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. 1 Corinthians 4.12, We labor, working with our own hands. Okay, so Paul mentions that again. To the Ephesians elders, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. I am not using godliness as a means to gain, as Paul also wrote years later to Timothy, First Timothy six five. and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Well, there's a lots of folks like that in in America today. The prosperity gospel. Are you listening, Kenneth Copeland? Are you listening, Joel Osteen? Are you listening, Creflo? Dollar, the almighty, Creflo, the almighty dollar. Paul never took money from a church he was at the time ministering to. Now, he did take money from churches he wasn't ministering to because nobody could accuse him of preaching for gain, preaching for profit. Paul is trying to set an example for the Ephesian elders. Their leadership positions made them able to reap a lot of offerings. People would give them money and they could get a lot of money. And Paul's saying, ah, when you are a big shot, don't use your position to make money off of it. Paul is implicitly comparing himself to the false teachers at work in Ephesus who were making money off their heresy, as Adam Clark says. We go to verse 35 in Acts 20. In every way I've shown you that by laboring like this, like how? With your hands, hard. In every way that I've shown you by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's one of my most favorite verses in the Bible because it is true. When you give money, I don't mean just give money to an organization somewhere and you don't know where it's going, although that is blessed too. But boy, when you give money to somebody that needs it, somebody that's appreciative, and you watch them get over the hump because of the money you gave them, that's a blessing, folks. It is a real blessing. And notice that Paul... And laboring like this not only was working for himself so that he wouldn't put a burden on the Ephesian church, he said, I've shown you that by laboring like this it is necessary to help the weak. His idea is, hey, you elders need to work so you can give money to the poor people at Ephesus. Now, isn't that something? Elders giving money to the people in the flock as opposed to the people in the flock giving money to the elders? Now, I know that Paul said the elders were worthy of double honor who worked hard. So it's nothing wrong with giving money to elders, of course. But also, hey... Here Paul's saying the elders need to work to give money to the poor people in the church. Give the money to where it's needed to keep the church going. Now this is one of the few places, in fact it's the only place I know of, but the NIV Study Bible says it's a rare instance of a saying of Jesus is not found in the canonical Gospels. Paul got it from somewhere. And notice that the work this I've mentioned it in passing, but Paul says, I've shown you by laboring like this. How hard manual labor, making tents was not easy. So elders keep working, nothing wrong with, what do they call bivocational pastors? All the elders at Ephesus were to be bivocational pastors. And it's really ironic, circumstances have forced seminaries to do that. I, let me give you a good story. There's a seminary in Atlanta, Georgia, in Decatur, Georgia. My dentist's son is going there, and it's not really a conservative seminary, unfortunately. But they had uh, the minister of, not, not the, I'm sorry, not the minister, the the vice president of finance or somebody, some financial officer in the seminary got up to all those young seminarians and said, let me tell you right now, you want to make a living, you better be bivocational because there ain't any jobs out there for full-time pastors. I was going hip, hip, hooray. That conforms with the pattern in the Gospels. Nothing wrong with being bivocational. Now, of course, it's nice to have a job where you can have some time left over. You can be flexible in your time, and that's hard. But, you know, it was hard back then, too. Everything is hard. Doesn't mean it's wrong to do because making you living off the gospel, taking a full-time salary, and becoming a professional pastor with all kinds of seminars to take care of your vocational needs. Look at all the polls. Look at, I love these. I used to teach human resources management. I've always been interested in jobs. And being a pa- professional pastor is a kind of a job. And I like to see these polls of people that are most unhappy in their jobs. And it's really funny. Because I used to be a lawyer, pastors usually end up number one on the list. Lawyers are right up there near the top. Dentists are, uh, sometimes end up way up there too. Depends on which poll you're looking at, but no, professional pastors ain't happy with what they're doing. And if you look at their jobs and see the crap that they got to put up with, and it's no wonder that they're unhappy. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be pastors, not full-time professional ones. Let them grow up to be elders. Have a real job and give their time to the church, their spare time to the church, and share it with other elders who are also giving their spare time to the church. We go to verse 36, 37, and 38. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. That's Paul. After Paul said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them, all of the Ephesian elders. There was a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. Then he escorted him to the ship. Now, it's obvious they love Paul dearly, crying over and hugging him. Now, they didn't hug like we do in America. Adam Clark said that they leaned their heads against his shoulders and kissed his neck, as was the custom in the East. Well, whatever. They, They hugged him. And then the Ephesian elders walked with him all the way back as Paul got on the ship. This is at the port of Miletus still, remember. And the ship takes off for Jerusalem. Now, they were grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. That happened a few verses earlier in Acts 20, verse 25. Paul had told them, And now I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Everyone I went about preaching the kingdom to. Now, as the NIV Study Bible notes, that Paul might have been mistaken about that. He might have seen them again. But at this time, the assumption was they're never going to see each other again until they get to heaven. And you know, I remember leaving China, and there's a lot of people in China I know I'm never going to see again, people I really loved. And I have gotten hard to that. I say, well, I'm going to see them again in heaven, and that's not just a, a, what do you call it? It's not just something that somebody says to make you feel good. It really is true. I'm going to see those people again in heaven, and I need to take that literally and to know that, yes, that really is true. But it also shows that we're human beings, and when you part in this world, yeah, it's sad. It's really sad. But at any rate, Paul heads to Jerusalem. We'll take that up in Acts 21 as he continues his journey back home at the end of the third voyage. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.